please, y'all, stay home. Please stay home. Please stay home. Yes, please. Stay home. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. In Palinville, New York, WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe, even during pandemics, on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. An all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com with way too much to get to today, but I'm going to try to do it anyway. Good luck. Well, thank you. I need it. Thank you, Desi Doyle. Good <laughs> to see you. Uh, have you noticed uh, how we are not hearing uh, from Donald Trump uh, every day these days or from his, you know, his so-called task force briefings? or from Fox News, or from the right-wing sycophants. We're not hearing nearly every day about that miracle drug, hydroxychloroquine, that we that they were all citing as a cure for the coronavirus that everybody should be taking. We were hearing that day after day after day for weeks, but over the past week or two, it seems they've kind of stopped talking about it altogether. Yeah, they have. There may be a reason for that. Really? Yes. Uh, as Dr. Anthony Fauci was trying to say at the time that Trump who, as it turns out, is not actually a doctor or even a scientist of any kind, as he was literally telling people from the White House press room, Trump was, that they should start taking this drug. Fauci was trying to say that, you know what, we got no actual evidence uh, that it actually helps people with COVID-19 and it actually could hurt them, that we need to wait for proper studies. Well, now we have one such study, and the results may explain why Sean Hannity is no longer telling his viewers and listeners that hydroxychloroquine results in a 100% cure rate, as he had been doing for many weeks. A malaria drug widely touted by Donald Trump for treating the new coronavirus showed... No benefit in a large analysis of its use in U.S. veterans hospitals and worse, there were more deaths among those given hydroxychloroquine versus standard care, according to the researchers. The nationwide study of 368 patients is the largest look so far at hydroxychloroquine 
with or without the antibiotic azithromycin for COVID-19. Researchers analyzed medical records of 368 male veterans hospitalized with confirmed coronavirus cases at Veterans Health Administration medical centers around the country who died or were discharged by April 11. About 28% who were given hydroxychloroquine plus usual care died. 28% died versus 11% of those getting routine care alone and no hydroxychloroquine. So your chance of survival, at least according to this somewhat limited test, Although the largest we have to date, uh, it was only for for men in uh, VA hospital facilities. Your chances of survival was actually worse taking the drug that Donald Trump and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram all recommended over and over and over as a cure for coronavirus. So no wonder they have stopped talking about it so much. And no wonder that study from the University of Chicago that we mentioned on yesterday's broadcast recently found that those who watch Sean Hannity on Fox News are far more likely to get sick and die from COVID than even those who watched Tucker Carlson on Fox News, who, at least in the early days of this crisis, took it more seriously while Hannity was telling people it was a hoax meant to take down the president. Anyway, hydroxychloroquine made no difference in the need for a breathing machine either, according to the researchers. They did not track side effects, but they noted a hint that hydroxychloroquine may have damaged other organs. The drug has long been known to have potentially serious side effects, including altering the heartbeat in a way that could lead to sudden death. But sure, take it, take it, try it. Or as Trump said over and over again from the White House podium during one of his uh, many briefings on this, what do you have to lose? I'm not a doctor. But I have common sense. It's not gonna it's not gonna hurt people. It can help them, but it's not gonna hurt them. That's the beauty of it, you see? It can help them, but it's not gonna hurt them. What do you have to lose? Well, apparently you have your life to lose, Mr. President. And everything you just said is actually the complete opposite of the truth. Great job, sir. Got any other advice to help kill Americans? Heck of a job, Trumpy. Earlier this month, scientists in Brazil stopped part of a study testing chloroquine, which is an older drug similar to hydroxychloroquine, after heart rhythm problems developed in one quarter of people given the uh, higher higher of two doses being tested at the time. At the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Dr. Nasia Safdar, the medical director of infection control and prevention, said, I think we're all rather underwhelmed at what's been seen among the patients who have tried it. In the meantime, the coronavirus pandemic has already caused as many as 41,000 deaths in the UK, according to a Financial Times analysis of the latest data from the UK's Office for National Statistics, or ONS. That estimate is more than double the official Figure currently of 17,330 deaths released by ministers on Tuesday. That's updated daily, and it only counts those who have died in hospitals after testing positive for the virus. 
The Financial Times extrapolation is based on figures from the ONS that were published on Tuesday and includes deaths that occurred outside hospitals updated to reflect recent mortality trends. The ONS data showed that deaths registered in the week ending April 10 were 75% above normal in England and Wales. That is the highest level for more than 20 years. There were 18,516 deaths registered during that period, compared with the most recent five-year average of just over 10,000 for the same week of the year. There were similar patterns in Scotland and Northern Ireland. In other words, the U.K. is finding... Similar numbers that are being found elsewhere around the world when they compare overall deaths during recent months to the number that would normally be expected for this time of year as compared to many previous years. And they are finding death rates uh, over the past month or two to be about twice as high as usual, even after they subtract the confirmed cases of coronavirus deaths. Nick Stripe, head of life events at the U.K.'s Office for National Statistics, said the figure was, quote, unprecedented. The number of deaths in the U.K. has moved from uh, running at below long term averages now to well above them as a result of the pandemic. Excess deaths from all causes stand uh, about 17,000 above the seasonal average across the UK since fatalities from COVID-19 caused the virus and they uh, began to mount in mid-March. The all-cause excess mortality figure, in other words, that's excess mortality for all causes, that is becoming widely recognized now as the best measure of the death toll linked to the pandemic. These include deaths caused both directly and indirectly by the coronavirus, but not recorded as such in hospitals. So the death of people who died at home who were never tested for coronavirus or tested falsely negative, those numbers are included here, as well as those who might not have otherwise died, who didn't die directly from the coronavirus, but because they didn't go to the hospital, for example, with chest pains out of concern of becoming infected with coronavirus. But then they died at home of a heart attack. That would be an indirect coronavirus death. So deaths not found to be due directly to coronavirus because they weren't tested or deaths for other reasons related to coronavirus. So the number of deaths from COVID-19 is almost certainly at least twice as high as currently being reported. Uh, and not just in the UK. We're finding similar studies in the US and around the world. So uh, the number of deaths is much higher than people understand it to be. And I think we sort of knew that, but it's good to have somebody actually figuring out statistically, methodically, well, how been, much higher this death rate actually is. It's, it's being confirmed in country after country where yes. they look at these numbers and they say, wait, why do we have all of these dead people all of a sudden, even if we take out the number of coronavirus deaths? Now, you said uh, that the death rate is twice as high. It's actually not. The number of deaths are uh, twice what would be expected this ah, time of year. The death rate, as it turns out, may be much, much lower than we've understood it to be. 
the death rate of those who contract coronavirus. We reported earlier in the week on the first large-scale coronavirus antibody study of 3,300 people in Santa Clara County. That's up in uh, Northern California. Uh, That study found that 2.5 to 4.2% of those who were tested were actually positive for antibodies, which develop in the blood in response to having the disease. That suggests that many more people have been infected with it than public health officials have counted. The samples were taken in Santa Clara County in early April when the the confirmed number of cases was about 1,000. But the study published on Friday estimates that anywhere from 48,000 to 81,000 people in the county who could be infected, according to leading researchers who say there are likely 50 to 80 times more infections in the state's counties than what is being reported. Well, now we have another data point along those lines, this time down here in Southern California in Los Angeles County, where we are according to USC and the L.A. County Department of Health. This is from a collaborative scientific study between the two, which suggests that infections from the new coronavirus are far more widespread and the fatality rate much lower, at least in L.A. County, than previously thought. The results are from the first round of an ongoing study to determine the scope and spread of the pandemic across the county. Based on results of the first round of testing, the research team estimates that approximately 4.1% of the county's adult population has antibody to the virus. So when they adjust for statistical margins of error, that means that about 2.8 to 5.6 of the county's adult population has antibody to the virus. And we've got about, uh, I want to say, 8 million people here in Los Angeles County. So that translates to approximately 221,000 to 442,000 adults in L.A. County who have had the infection. That is 28 to 55 times higher than the uh, 8,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 reported by the county. So deaths due to coronavirus are likely twice as high as known, but the death rate may be much lower because the number of infections is as much as 28 to 55 times as high as currently confirmed, according to these uh, researchers in L.A., and 50 to 80 times higher, according to the uh, similar research in Santa Clara, all of which merely underscores how much we do not know about this disease still at this point, making it even more insane. When governors like dumb as dirt, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp just comes out of nowhere without consulting health officials or even the mayors of the state's three largest cities to just simply declare, as he did on Monday. Given the favorable data, enhanced testing and approval of our health care professionals, we will allow gyms, fitness centers, bowling alleys, body art studios, barbers, cosmetologists, hair designers, nail care artists, estheticians, their respective schools, and massage therapists to reopen their doors this Friday, April the 24th. This measure will apply statewide and will be the operational standard in all jurisdictions. 
This means local action cannot be taken that is more or less restrictive. Bowling alleys, massage therapists, body art studios. That means tattoo parlors, by the way. He's opening up tattoo parlors. And no local county officials or mayors are allowed to say otherwise in their own hometowns, you know, because Republicans believe in small government so much, right? Yeah, local rights. Very important, clearly. Uh, So that is all thanks to uh, Georgia's illegitimate Republican Governor Brian Kemp, who is now leading the way for other Republican governors to take similar actions around the country. He will also be opening restaurants and movie theaters as of this coming Monday in the Peach State. Even as mayors are begging people to not listen to the governor, they have no actual authority to say, no, no, we're keeping stay at home in place because the governor says, nope, local authority, you got none. I'm in control here. Also, despite health experts, he claims that he talked to his top health experts. Well, wrong. Uh, From Georgia to the federal government's own CDC and even Trump's own coronavirus task force, they are all advising otherwise. But not Trump himself or the leader of his task force, Vice President Mike Pence. And I guess I should also note that he he is not also not a doctor or a scientist, just like Donald Trump is not. President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence, according to CNN Today, both called Governor Brian Kemp on Tuesday night and expressed support and praise for the Republicans' move to reopen businesses in his state starting on Friday. The call came as public health officials warned that Kemp is moving too quickly. Some business owners said they would keep their doors closed and mayors said that they feared Kemp's actions would deepen the coronavirus crisis in their communities. But Trump and Pence complimented Kemp on his performance as uh, Georgia governor. Another person familiar with the call said that it went very well. It's the most aggressive move yet to reopen a state's economy as Trump optimistically pushes for a May 1 end to statewide lockdowns. It also came as a surprise to mayors and some members of Kemp's own coronavirus task force. But wait, I thought he said he consulted with his top health officials who all agreed. Data collection by Johns Hopkins University shows that as of Wednesday, Georgia had seen more than 20,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus and had recorded more than 800 deaths resulting from the virus, which is, as we know, likely about twice that in truth, given what we know about these numbers now. Well, you know who else that uh, Brian Kemp uh, did not consult before his announcement? Lawrenceville, Georgia physician Dr. Carla Lorraine, whose video that she made into her iPhone after hearing this news at the hospital, still in her scrubs and other protective gear, was picked up by Now This, and pardon the expression, went viral yesterday. Governor Kemp, you should be ashamed of yourself. Um, I'm at work today, and I just got the um, information that uh, Kemp... I can't even call him Governor Kemp, is reopening Georgia on Friday and then opening everything up on Monday. Um, I'm so upset that I'm not going to take my mask off. I mean, I don't even want you to see the cuss words that are coming, (laughs) that could be coming out of my mouth. Do they not understand 
that we are coming to work under these conditions. Th this is what I'm wearing. I just had to reclaim re this. This is my new, my new. I'm doing all of this stuff, all of this. I try to protect myself to come in here and to take care of patients and to try to help to flatten this curve and to try to keep people that need to go to the hospital going to the hospital. I mean, we're risking our lives every freaking single day and they're reopening. Reopening Georgia on Friday in four days. Why not just open it today? It's a slap in the face to those of us who are coming in here with inadequate PPE. It's a slap in the face to us that are coming out here taking care of COVID positive patients. I mean, even the, I'll call them healthcare workers. Those are the people that come and clean up after everything that we do. Governor Kemp, you should be ashamed of yourself. Anybody who is in alignment with what you, I'm gonna just talk about Georgia, you, Governor Kemp, are doing. You should be ashamed of yourself. We are risking our lives out here. I mean, I feel like I could cry. I'm taking my clothes off at the front door. My husband has a, a tub sitting at the front door. I take my clothes off when I walk in the door and run upstairs and take a, ba a shower before I can even touch him. And you're reopening massage parlors, tattoo parlors. Why, why are we going through all this? Truly tell me, is the dollar more important than the lives of Americans? than the lives of, of our world. What are you all thinking? Why are you doing this to us? How can this still be about money? Just money, that's all this is. Please stay home, y'all. Stay home and protect me and everybody that's doing what I do, including environmental services. We are doing our best with nothing. I, I think I've had this mask for a week. I just threw out my N95 because when I did a COVID test today, the lady coughed on me. Please, y'all, stay home. Please stay home. Please stay home. That was Lawrenceville, Georgia physician Dr. Carla Lorraine in a video uh, put together by Now This. So, uh, yeah, what are we going to do about it? Well, for one thing, we're going to vote like crazy this November. And uh, yes, in upcoming primary elections, at least I hope. Sadly, shamefully, embarrassingly, many states are uh, still preparing to force voters to use uh, unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, even in the middle of a deadly pandemic. The good news is that uh, lawsuits are now beginning to pile up in hopes of stopping at least that madness. If it's even possible for common sense to win the day anywhere right now. Uh, one of the attorneys who just filed suit against the incredibly closely divided battleground state of North Carolina joins us next on the broadcast to discuss exactly that. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Touch it, touch it, touch it, touch me. I want to be dirty. No, no don't me. touch it. Don't touch anything. Don't touch anybody. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Wow, that's kind of jarring. Anyway, uh, as we have been covering, uh, there are a whole bunch of elections still to come in the primary cycle this year with more than 20 states yet to hold their primaries. Not only for the presidential election, but all sorts of congressional, state and local races and initiatives that will be on the ballot in states that had previously postponed elections due to the coronavirus crisis, but cannot hold them off for much longer. Voting in Ohio is already underway with all vote by mail and in-person voting to be completed next Tuesday, April 28th. After Republican Governor Mike DeWine postponed the Buckeye state's original March 17 election day by ordering his state health director to essentially condemn polling places as health hazards during a statewide emergency. As other states prepare for their own upcoming primaries over the next month or two, most of them previously postponed, voting rights advocates are heading to the courtroom to make sure the new election policies being put in place due to the pandemic, are fair. We've been covering a number of those cases over the past week or two. For example, voter groups and Democrats convinced a judge last Thursday to order that the state of Texas allow voters to claim fear of coronavirus as a reason to obtain an absentee ballot for the state's July primary. The state is continuing to fight that effort, however, to expand absentee voting including the state's Republican AG actually threatening third parties with criminal liability if they advise voters to use fear of coronavirus as an excuse to apply for an absentee ballot in the Lone Star State. After Missouri's GOP governor refused to make coronavirus an absentee voting excuse, the state was hit with a lawsuit by voting rights advocates last week. An effort by local election clerks and New Mexico's Democratic Secretary of State to make their primary a completely vote-by-mail election by sending a ballot to every registered voter, well, that was blocked in court by Republicans. But the state Supreme Court ordered that the clerks nonetheless make the process of applying to vote absentee as easy as possible by sending every registered voter, if not a ballot, then an application for a vote-by-mail ballot. In Nevada, election officials are significantly expanding mail-in voting for the primary, but Democrats last week filed a lawsuit against Republican Secretary of State Barbara Savasky challenging how Nevada is going about that expansion. The Democrats, who cleverly found a small-town Nevada mayor with the, with the last name of Corona to be their lead plaintiff, they're taking aim at the plans for major reductions of in-person voting places, as well as certain absentee policies that may cut off access for certain voters in a case now ingeniously named Corona versus Sagafsky. 
In Virginia, the state's requirement that an absentee voter must have a witness sign his or her ballot, that's the subject of a lawsuit filed last week, which pointed out the health risks that... uh, Um, The the, the mandate poses, particularly for older voters who may be quarantining alone and may have fear, justifiably, of having someone come to their home to sign their absentee ballot as a witness. And, of course, on yesterday's broadcast, we discussed the lawsuit filed by the Nonpartisan Coalition for Good Governance against Georgia's Secretary of State, with the coalition's founder, Marilyn Marks, explaining the uh, suit, which seeks to push back Election Day in Georgia for another three weeks to mandate curbside voting for all in-person voters and allow counties to switch to much safer hand-marked paper ballot systems at the polling place rather than the new unverifiable disease vector touchscreen ballot marking devices or BMDs that Georgia's Republican Secretary of State continues to insist on forcing on all counties across the state, even in the middle of a global pandemic. Before that global pandemic took over, uh, well, took over just about everything, including much of this program, we had spent quite a bit of time reporting on the dangers of those new touchscreen voting systems, which are now proliferating much of the country this year, particularly in key battleground states like Georgia and Pennsylvania. But even here in L.A. County, the nation's largest voting jurisdiction, where the county's first time rollout for the Super Tuesday presidential primary on March 3rd of their new unverifiable touchscreen voting systems for the county's five and a half million registered voters, that rollout was an unmitigated disaster as we had long warned it would be for many years on this program before anybody else was even paying attention to the $300 million boondoggle here in my home county. Incredibly enough, even during a deadly national health emergency, many jurisdictions around the country are still planning on using these new unverifiable touchscreen systems which print out a computer-marked paper ballot, which, after an election, can never be known to have been verified, accurately or otherwise, by any voter. One of those states is North Carolina, arguably one of the most closely divided states in the country, having narrowly voted for Barack Obama back in 2008 and then Mitt Romney in 2012 and then Donald Trump in 2016, even while electing a Democrat as governor that same year on that same statewide ballot that they elected Donald Trump. Well, after finally doing away with the state's 15-year-old unverifiable touchscreen voting systems made by ESNS, the nation's largest and, frankly, most failed private voting machine company, the Democratic-majority North Carolina State Elections Board, astonishingly enough, allowed county elections boards to select new voting systems that included hand-marked paper ballot systems and the new touchscreen ballot marking devices also made by ESNS. Even more astonishingly, a number of counties across the state, including the state's largest and most diverse and, yes, most Democratic-leaning county of Mecklenburg, chose to jump from the frying pan and into the fire by dumping their old failed touchscreen systems for brand new and already 
failed new touchscreen voting systems. And now they and other North Carolina, uh, North Carolina counties are being sued to force a move back to much safer, actually verifiable hand-marked paper ballot systems. Last week, voting rights advocates filed a lawsuit in Wake County Superior Court challenging the new electronic voting system that Mecklenburg County and several other North Carolina counties rushed to implement for the 2020 elections, alleging the new systems are vulnerable to security threats and its results are unverifiable. The suit also alleges that using this new system, the ESNS Express Vote, is particularly perilous during the COVID-19 pandemic. Nonetheless, the machines, which were used widely in the state for the first time in North Carolina's March 3rd Super Tuesday primary, are set for use once again in more than 20 North Carolina counties for this year's critical presidential election. The North Carolina State Conference of the NAACP and several North Carolina voters are bringing the lawsuit and being represented by a number of organizations, including Free Speech for People, which describes the new system as, quote, fatally flawed. Joining us now is counsel at Free Speech for People, Courtney Hostetler. Welcome to the broadcast, Courtney. Thank you. I'm great to be here. So so what is uh, Free Speech for People and the NAACP's main concern about the use of these new voting systems in North Carolina, though I realize there are several? I think that if I can go to two, I think the mm-hmm. two are that it's insecure, and it's unverifiable. And I know you mentioned both of these issues, and I think it's worth pressing again, um, because the express vote really fails on both counts, and it makes it an untenable and, we think, unconstitutional machine to require any voter to use. Um, first, the express vote is one of four ballot marking devices that mm-hmm. are certified for use in North Carolina. It is the only one that uses a barcode to tabulate device, to tabulate votes, mm-hmm. which means that once the paper is printed out, somebody will make their selections selections on the screen, and then a, a small uh, scanned piece of paper is printed out that has a summary of their choices. It's not a full ballot. It doesn't look like the kind of ballot that you would fill out by hand, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't look like a you know it doesn't have all the complete information. It does have a text summary, but that text summary isn't what is read or tabulated by the scanning machines that count and tabulate votes, Mm. because this piece of paper also has a barcode on it. Mm -hmm. That barcode can't be read by people, right? You, Mm -hmm. You as the voter could not read that, but that's what the machine reads. So you as the reader, you as the voter has to trust that the barcode matches the summary and that the summary is correct. Of course, and why worry? Why worry? I'm sure it's <laughs> fine. Now, the um, I regard and, and refer to uh, all of these ballot marking devices as all of them unverifiable. You mentioned that there are three other models that don't use barcodes that actually have human readable text that is uh, marked by the computer. But even on those systems, after an election, we don't know if people have verified those printouts or not. In short, it's impossible to know that those are verified uh, by the voter either after an election. But you're only focusing on the ones with the barcodes that absolutely can never be verified by the voters? Yes. And the reason is that we, you know, the express vote has a history of being insecure. There's mm-hmm. a history of malfunctions. There's a history of being prone to hacking. We think this machine is uniquely vulnerable um, of the four machines that have been certified. It is also the only one that uses a barcode. 
So again, it's mm-hmm. the only one where what's being tabulated cannot be read. And you're right. There are studies showing that people don't tend to mm-hmm. verify what is on the what is on the printed page that is coming out of these machines, and that is an enormous problem. But this is the only one they can't. There is just a barcode there. Mm-hmm. The other issue, of course, is that it is important for every um, for every county to provide a machine that is accessible for all individuals who might need it because of a disability or because of another issue. Mm-hmm. While we agree that absolutely there needs to be hand-marked paper ballots, this is the most secure system, it needs to be hand-in-hand with a system that is as safe and secure and as accessible as possible for those people who need it. The express vote does not provide that for voters with disabilities. The other machines are different. Again, they don't use a barcode. Mm-hmm and they produce ballots. What prints out of those machines are ballots that look essentially identical to the kind of ballot that people are filling out by hand. So there's, there's benefits there. The other thing is these other systems mm-hmm. are not for universal use. The express vote is the only one that's certified for universal use, which means there are counties in North Carolina who can choose to require all voters to use this machine. And in fact, seven counties, like you said, Mecklenburg being one of them, Mm -hmm. has chosen that route. So it is not just that it's available for people who are, say, early voting Mm -hmm. or uh, voting because they they require the assistance of this kind of device. They are requiring all voters to use it. So one of the the reasons that these machines are being pushed on voters all across the country is that, oh, they are are assistive devices for uh, disabled voters who choose to use them, who may need help in filling out their ballots. And if we only uh, allow uh, disabled voters to use them, somehow that's not fair that's ghettoizing them uh, so therefore let's force everyone to use these systems and I often say that's like uh, you know w- w- when we build a ramp at City Hall we don't also tear down the stairs but that is what w- what we're doing in many of these cases and yet you say uh, Courtney Hostetler that uh, that even for disabled voters the ESNS Express vote system does not serve their needs we believe this system is so insecure, has proven to be unreliable, insecure, unverifiable. This is not a system that any, this is not a voting machine that anybody should be required to vote on. It just, I don't think it, it doesn't pass the test of, of, of security you and also, reliability. You also say that it has a history of failure. These are actually pretty new systems, this uh, express vote system and its uh, larger screened uh, uh, cousin, the express vote XL. The XL, I believe, is used in in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, incredibly enough. They have chosen now this year to use the ExpressVote XL. Uh, I believe Kansas uses the regular ExpressVote, but they're not very old, and yet you say they have a history already of failure? Well, there's several different, like you said, there's several different types of ExpressVote. Many of them are substantially similar, and we're seeing the similar types of vulnerabilities show up. The state of California actually did uh, a pretty comprehensive security analysis of the, uh, of the ExpressVote, very similar to the one being used in North Carolina, and found a number of security concerns that demonstrate that it's vulnerable to human error, human programming error, intentional hacking. There's a number of issues that arise. I think the other issue that arises with these machines um, is that when you have these machines, 
you have a likelihood that there's going to be backup backup at the polls if you're requiring every single voter to who comes through the door to use machines. Mm-hmm. When you're using hand-marked paper ballots, you can often get more people voting at the same time. That's not true, especially when you have counties that don't have the same kind of resources as other counties do. They might choose to buy fewer machines. They might have older machines. These machines are new. That won't always be true. If they're using these in two years, four years, 10 years, 20 years, and Mm -hmm. we're seeing some machines in use that have been there for a long time, they're going to be prone to... they're going to be even more prone to security lapses, to malfunctions. When a machine goes out of order, even for 30 minutes, and sometimes they're out of order for longer than that, you have those lines backing up. And yep. that's a form of voter suppression. When you have people in Mecklenburg County trying to take time off of work, and they show up and there's a three-hour line to get in the door, not everybody's going to be able to stay in that three-hour line. And so that's, I think, part of it that's harder to quantify, but is absolutely a concern with some of these machines. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, you know, the number of machines you choose to use in any given precinct is a great way to suppress the vote, because with these machines, you have to use them to vote, whereas paper ballots, you can, you know, largely have as many people voting as they want to at a time. Uh, And so the lines do back up in these places. And please note, we are talking about all of this as if there is not a global pandemic, uh, you know, that would, you know, make people not want to touch a machine that has been touched by other people all day. Uh, What are you finding uh, as far as how the coronavirus may affect the use of touchscreen systems, which, by the way, I mean, in one sense, this entire conversation seems insane to me. It was insane to use these machines before the pandemic. Now it just seems insaner, and I can't believe that uh, any state is actually continuing to use these. So what what are the, the, the fears, the additional fears that we now have because of coronavirus? Well, I think we know that the coronavirus transmits in two big ways. One is it can transmit between people, and one is it can transmit if, if somebody with the virus touches something that somebody else then touches. We know that the virus can sustain, can survive on glass and plastic, which is what the express vote is made out of, for upwards of two to five days, certainly throughout an elect- a, a, a day of voting. Mm-hmm. So you have two concerns. One is you have somebody with the coronavirus. It could be a poll worker. It could be an early voter touches the screen. How many other people touch that that day? Dozens? Hundreds? Uh, the express vote has, or ESNS has come out with some instructions on how to clean it. And they should, they should give you pause because they have limits on the kind of cleaners you can use. And the ESNS and other, and other manufacturers are selling special cleaning equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another way to, to make some money. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's gonna, it's gonna be costly. You can't just use anything that the CDC recommends. You have to use what the manufacturers recommend. They have pretty, uh, limited things that you're allowed to do to clean the machine. One of them is you can't spray the machine directly. You can't put too much moisture on it. But, of course, you need enough moisture to actually sanitize it. You need to have trained poll workers. We know we're going to be losing a lot of our poll workers. So you've got the the difficulty of actually sanitizing these machines. Even if you have a trained poll worker who's extremely efficient, and only takes, let's say, a minute to mm-hmm. clean the machine. And I don't know if it's going to take longer or shorter than that. Let's say they can do it in a minute. You have 200 people going through 
that's 200 minutes, right? Yeah. Right there, you've added three extra hours that this machine can't be used during the day. That's going to cause backup. Yeah. Now I, you have people waiting in longer lines. You've got a higher risk of transmission person to person. Also in Mecklenburg County, the way that the machines are set up, a poll worker actually has to go into the booth to actually get the machine, to authorize the machine and pull up the right ballot. So every single time somebody votes, it's not a matter of somebody handing a, you know, handing a hand, um, a ballot across a table. Mm -hmm. Um, It is actually the poll workers going in there. The poll worker is going to have to come into very close, absolutely within six feet contact of every single person who votes in some of these counties. So now you have not only the possibility of transmitting through the machine, you also have a heightened risk of person-to-person transmission throughout the day. Oh, my God. Uh, It's just amazing. And, you know, we were speaking with Marilyn Marks, the Coalition for Good Governance, who has uh, her own lawsuit against the state of Georgia for something similar. And and she uh, points out that the uh, they use the brand new Dominion ImageCast ballot marking devices, and Dominion recommends how they should be cleaned between uh, between voters if there's concerns about disease. But Dominion notes that you should not clean the machine while it's turned on. You need to power it off first, and then clean it, and then reboot it. This is just absolute madness. Now, there's one other uh, feature that I want to ask you about, Courtney, if the machines in North Carolina actually have. Does the ESNS Express Vote system used in the state have the so-called autocast feature? It's our understanding that they do. So the way that the autocast works is counties could have control over whether or not to employ it or whether or not to allow voters to use it. Mm-hmm. But the machines themselves do have the autocast built in, as far as we know. Well, the, uh, that's a, a feature that um, experts have described as the permission to cheat feature. And uh, I'll explain my understanding of it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially it, it asks the voters if they wish to review the computer-marked paper ballot summary first, uh, and if they say no, then the computer-printed ballot summary card just is not ever reviewed by the voter before it's cast. It just goes straight into the machine to be counted later. Uh, But that also means you have just told the machine you're not going to review the selections so the machine knows if it wants to cheat now is a great time to do it. No one will ever figure it out. Do, do, am I adequately uh, describing that feature, Courtney? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. A hacker could program the machine to only change the ballots of those uh, of those votes where the voter elects to not review the the paper trail before it goes through because the decision is made before the ballot card prints. And has this been? Uh, you say it's it's being left up to the counties if they wish to ch- uh, turn on that feature. Do we know yeah. if they are turning that feature on? And is that a part of your lawsuit at the very least to force these people <laughs> to uh, turn off this permission to cheat feature? We've certainly identified AutoCast as an enormous problem with the express vote, and as we pursue discovery, one of the things we'll be looking into is whether or not counties are uh, using this option. I know that the uh, NAACP is leading this suit uh, along with a number of voter plaintiffs. Is there a, uh, is there a specific racial component uh, to the use of touchscreen voting systems that is of concern, or is the concern here from the NAACP merely that uh, you know big counties like Mecklenburg Uh, home of the state's largest city, Charlotte, uh, and and some of the other counties choosing to use these systems, that they happen to be very diverse uh, counties, or is there a specific racial component that you're aware of? 
Well, I think it's I think it's both. I don't know that it's just, it just it doesn't just happen to be these counties, right? I think we know that um, there's this element of voter suppression that can be tied with machine use, and when you have counties that are more diverse or might have a lower socioeconomic makeup, um, those counties might have less money. They might be purchasing fewer machines. They might have less money to make sure the machines are getting fixed or updated, and as a result, those voters are going to be uniquely vulnerable to machine breakdown, to backup in the voter lines, um, to insecure elections. It's worth noting, by the way, also that the express vote, although it is a new machine, actually features end of li- an end-of-life version of Microsoft that actually will no longer be supported by Microsoft before the end of this year. Is it, it's got Windows 7 on it, does it? Yep, Windows CE 7. <laughs> oh, man. So it's a uh, brand new machine, <laughs> but the thing that makes the machine function yes. is, is software that's simply not going to be supported by the by Microsoft as of October. I believe it actually lapses, um, I believe it lapses before the November elections. It's only millions of dollars we're paying for these things. Why bother having, you know, that, that'll get us through this year. That's good enough, apparently. We got plenty of money. Uh, North Carolina already held its presidential primaries in uh, early March on Super Tuesday. Are there are there any other elections in the state where these systems are set to be used? Or is the next time they're going to be used the uh, November 3rd presidential election at this point? I'm not entirely sure. I believe some might have local or special mm-hmm. elections or state primaries that are coming up over the summer. But of course, the big one we're all looking to is November. The reason I'm, a- I'm asking specifically is because uh, I know this case was filed in state court, as I understand it. And I don't know what the timetable is uh, for it. I know you just filed it. Don't even know if you have a timetable yet. Uh, But are are, are there concerns that you may bump into the so-called Purcell principle, which the U.S., to explain to people, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has recently started citing this uh, Purcell principle as an unbreakable, unbreakable precedent, as if it was written by the hand of God himself declaring that election laws may not be changed too close to an election or there could be chaos at the polls, even if not changing a particular procedure could itself result in chaos and disenfranchisement. And now, frankly, uh, with the covid crisis, potential death. So, you know, even when it's obvious that a procedure should change, the U.S. Supreme Court has said, nope, too close to an election. We can't do it. Is there a concern that you might run into that with this suit, or does the fact that it is in state court sort of uh, keep you safe from that? Our goal is to move this lawsuit along as quickly as possible, to move it into discovery, to move this case along efficiently. Um, we want to give counties enough time to make proper uh, to make the proper updates in order to protect their voters. Realistically, voters simply should not have to choose between their life and their health and voting. Those are rights, right? You should use the, the right to life, liberty, and happiness. I think life, not getting the COVID, not getting COVID nineteen, certainly falls under that. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have to weigh those two rights. You should be able to vote in a free and fair election, and you should be able to protect your health. And we think there's very easy ways uh, that these counties can d- make those changes. And we're looking to move the lawsuit along efficiently so that we're not, um, you know, we're not coming up against the day before mm-hmm. um, the day before the election, trying to get in order. The other thing, we also are dealing with a situation where there's going to be many more absentee ballots. Those are hand-marked ballots. So mm-hmm. we're not actually asking for a revolutionized system. Mm-hmm. The, the tabulators that they already buy, that already are in place, we're not, we're not uh, challenging the tabulators. Those tabulators can handle hand-marked paper ballots. 
They can also handle uh, they can also handle ballots printed by another um, accessible device, the AutoMark that is produced by ESNS. Mm-hmm. We know there's going to be many more handmarked paper ballots. Because of COVID-19, there's an enormous influx of people who are seeking to vote absentee. So it's just a matter of printing paper ballots for people who are voting in person as well. There are, there are three ballot marking devices available for use in North Carolina. There's no new certification requirement. They can absolutely get these machines to make sure that everybody who needs or wants to vote on mm-hmm. a ballot marking device can do, can do that. There's also going to be again, uh, uh, procedures in place to increase the ability, increase the, uh, the number of handmarked paper ballots available. So we're not asking for an enormous change. And the change we're asking for will secure elections and make people safe. I, you know, I, I just, many of these counties in North Carolina, I think maybe all of them now have majority Democratic boards, uh, you know, Democrats are, have the majority on the county boards of elections. And I just don't know what the hell they were thinking, to be frank. This still amazes me. Courtney Hostetler, uh, appreciate uh, you being in this fight here. Courtney is counsel at Free Speech for People, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization founded in uh, 2010 by our friend John Boniface to advocate for a new constitutional amendment to limit campaign spending and to repeal the doctrine of corporate personhood. Their portfolio has expanded over the years to include legal advocacy and public education to challenge the influence of money in politics and abuse of power and, of course, now election integrity and reform. Courtney Hostetler, uh, really appreciate you joining us today. Oh, and people can get more information at freespeechforpeople.org and uh, follow them, please, on the Twitters at FSFP. That's for Free Speech for People, FSFP. Courtney, really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Please stay in touch as this case moves forward. we got to get rid of these damn touchscreens. Thanks, Courtney. Okay. Thank you. All right, quick break, and we're back with our closing few minutes as uh, oil prices continue to tank. See what I did there? Desi Doyen, oil tank. Anyway, we'll be back with that story right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A crash in oil prices unleashed by the coronavirus lockdown hammered 
global stocks on Tuesday, though oil prices have now rebounded a bit, at least on Wednesday, and the irrationally exuberant stock market along with it, but it's not going to last as... No, it most certainly is not. We have been talking about on our Green News report about the global oil glut, which sent prices so low on Monday that sellers... Uh, holding U.S. crude contracts actually paid buyers as much as $30 a barrel to take it off their hands. Yes, oil fell to negative $37 a barrel that day, which means that if you had a place to put a barrel of oil, these producers would essentially give you 40 bucks to take it off their hands. Yeah. Uh, Frank Verastro uh, of the Center for Strategic and International Studies said the supply and demand balance for oil is so out of whack that global demand cannot grow fast enough and the suppliers cannot cut supply quickly enough to put things back in order. They just can't stop it because they can't stop themselves. Right. He said there's so much oil sloshing around the world and so few people using it that there is no remedy. Well, uh, this caught my eye. Uh, for Oh, and Donald Trump, by the way, he says he's going to say, he said in a, in, uh, in a tweet, we will never let the great U.S. oil and gas industry go down. I've instructed the Secretary of Energy and Treasury to formulate a plan which will make funds available so that these very important companies and jobs will be secured long into the future. So they're going to give them money. Of even course. Though a fossil fuel industry bailout, yeah. even though it's the most profitable industry in the history of mankind. Uh, so this caught my eye from The Washington Post. Uh, analysts said nearly 40 million Saudi Arabian barrels are on their way to the U.S. shores right now, adding to the tens of millions that are already in storage here. And we got nothing to do with them. The deliveries are, quote, probably going to be the final dagger in the heart of of the U.S. shale oil industry, said John Kilduff of Again Capital. Yes, the uh, U.S. Really? U.S. producers cannot compete with Saudi Arabia's extremely low cost of production. So the U.S. shale oil industry, that's fracking. That's oil fracking. Yes, it is. And that's not going to survive the pandemic, it seems like. So there's some good news from the pandemic, well, perhaps. Well, it's not, not great news for jobs, but there's a Green New Deal that could help with that. People just have to vote in politicians for that. But that's another conversation for well, another day. Well, that's the conversation we have every damn day <laughs> on this show. Uh, they, uh, the Wall Street Journal said the surplus is so pervasive that producers are storing oil in giant tanker ships that are roaming oceans right now looking for a place to unload. An estimated 10% of the world's oil tankers are currently being used for storage, according to the journal. It's a dumb system we got right now. It's a dumb system, and it's a failing market, but, you know, free market, right? Free market that we'll give a whole bunch of money to to shore them up, even though they can't take care of themselves and they're killing the world. But that is definitely for another day. <laughs> got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to my guest today, Courtney Hostetler of freespeechforpeople.org. And to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We hope we made it worth your while. If you uh, missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Share it with your friends, family, and enemies. And that is made possible by those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com, and you'll find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.